when I first started going to seminary, I was asked to preach at a Chinese-English church, and there was a Chinese guy next to me, and he was translating my English into Chinese, and half the congregation was Chinese and half was English. And when I met the elders, there was a lot of formality and a lot of bowing, and they were very reverent and uh, older gentlemen and very reserved. And so they asked me to come into a side room with them before the service because they wanted to pray. And as the elders were coming together, the head elder came over to me and he said, we are going to say hallelujah after the prayer. And I said, okay. He goes, no, no. We are going to say hallelujah. And I went, well, I'm in, man. I'm in. I'm in. (laughs) And what, what I didn't realize was that what he was actually trying to get me to understand was that we are going to say hallelujah with an absolutely, totally reckless abandon that shouts about how victorious our God is. And um, what happened after the prayer was, it was kind of like this. You can imagine ten Chinese guys kind of standing around. It was like this. Hallelujah! Glory to God! Praise God! Thank you for saving us! Oh, Jesus, thank you! Hallelujah to the Lord! And I was like, whoa! <laughs> And, um, you know, what I think he was doing was he was trying to say, look, every time we have a young preacher come by here from the Baptist seminary, we like, we like to warn him ahead of time because usually we scare the daylights out of the guy. <laughs> well, the, the great thing was that everyone in the sanctuary could hear us. And so when we walked out of the room... You just got this anticipated look on everybody's face like, we are ready to worship now. And it was pretty awesome, I I have to say. Well, so we're looking at Psalm 24, and you'll get why I told you that story as we go along. We're looking at Psalm 24 this morning, and it's intimately connected to another passage of Scripture. And it's uh, the passage that it's connected to is 2 Samuel 6, where it's David's famous triumphal worshiping, dancing joy when the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the city of David. And the the great treasure of Psalm 24 is that it gives us David's insight into the character of God. It tells us what David recognizes about God that makes God worthy of that triumphant joy that he expressed in 2 Samuel 6. So let me read, you can turn there if you'd like, 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 to 15. It's important that we understand the context for Psalm 24 so we have a better understanding of what David is saying in Psalm 24. Second Samuel 6, and I'll talk about this a little bit more as we get going. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. 
So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put his hand out to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day, which means outburst against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Odom-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. And then David danced, whirled about before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Well, let me review before we get to Psalm 24 and the significance of the relationship between this passage and Psalm 24. Let me review what the Ark of the Covenant is, just so we have it in our minds. It says here in this passage that it's called by the name the Lord of Hosts. It's also called the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Lord, or the Ark of God's Strength. It resides in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And the Holy of Holies is where heaven and earth come together. The ark was the key piece of furniture in the tabernacle. And on top of the ark is the mercy seat, flanked on either side by two gold-plated cherubim who guard access to God's presence. And at this very place, at the mercy seat, God had declared, There I will meet with you. And so the Lord dwelt between the cherubim and the ark, and it was God's throne among his people on the earth. Now the ark carried a few things. You'll remember it carried two tablets of the Ten Commandments as a reminder of God's holy law. It carried Aaron's budded rod, which was a reminder of God's sovereign will in choosing Aaron to be the head of the Levites. And it carried the pot of manna as a memorial of God's provision for Israel in the desert. And so the ark was a symbol of his presence and power with Israel wherever it went before Israel into battle. The term Lord of, Lord of Hosts was a favorite designation of God as a warrior who served as the source of protection for Israel in war. 
In fact, when David went out to meet Goliath, he said, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And when the Israelites left Egypt, the Levites were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and they were the first ones to touch the Jordan River. And when they did, the Jordan River separated. And so the Israelites could cross on dry land. When the walls of Jericho fell, there were Levites blowing trumpets, and right behind that was the Ark of the Covenant. And so it was just a demonstration of God's power in the presence of Israel. And having the Ark of God in your presence was having the absolute power of God on your side to bless you. So as we come to Psalm 24, there David gives us three reasons why he's convinced that the Lord of glory is absolutely worthy of being celebrated in our worship with a reckless, abandoned, triumphant joyfulness. The three reasons are he is the sovereign God, the creator and owner of all. His purity requires pure worship from all. And he is the most majestic king of all. Those are the three sections of Psalm 24. So if you'll turn to Psalm 24 for a moment, we'll look there. So the first verse says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So these verses speak of God's sovereignty, of his absolute independence and self-existence. God is sovereign in himself. By sovereign, scripture means that God's power and governing of the world is so extensive that there's nothing whatever that takes place apart from his plan and rule, even including the free actions of human beings. In all things, including human free agency, God acts in, with, and through his creatures so as to accomplish everything he desires to do in the way he desires to do it. That's what it means for him to be sovereign. He is the only one who is sovereign. He has the sole prerogative to establish the law for all of the universe to judge the creature and to execute his will in whatever way he sees fit, whenever he sees fit to do it. There's no standard or criterion above or next to God against which he can be measured or judged. There's nothing apart from him to which he must conform himself. There's no law to which he is subject, no committee to which he's responsible. He does not set the standard of what is right. He is the standard for all law, righteousness, and justice. And frankly, folks, I don't get why we struggle so much with God being sovereign in our world. Even as early as the 1900s, A.W. Pink wrote, In reality, there is no other possible alternative between an absolutely supreme sovereign God and no God at all. A God whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, possesses no title to deity. And so far from being a fit object of worship, 
he merits nothing but contempt. You know, there are signs and plaques that remind us of God's sovereignty everywhere. If you were to walk into Dan and Barb Lundy's house from the back door on the part on the porch and look to your left before you went into the kitchen, there's a sign right there. It says, God is the blessed controller of all things. Isn't it nice to have an elder who believes that? Famous theologians and preachers like Charles Spurgeon were preaching God's sovereignty regularly to their congregations. But I don't think we really think in the detail that they preached how sovereign God really was. This is what Spurgeon said. He said, it's most important for us to learn that the smallest trifles are as much arranged by the God of providence as the most momentous events. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. I believe that every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its ordained orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. I believe that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is as much steered by God as the stars in their course in the heavens. The creeping of an aphid over the rose bush is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. And I'm sure he's referring to the Exodus passage where the um, locusts came in, which we'll look at in a second. He finally said, The fall of a leaf from a poplar tree is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Now, I'm not sure we really agree with that as the church. I think we've allowed a lot of other thinking to come in, but this has certainly been the standard in the church for a number of centuries. But I think God's amazing sovereign power is really demonstrated in Scripture in a particular area, and I'd like to take a minute to look at that. So if you'd turn to Exodus chapter 8 for a moment, we're going to look there. This is really detailed stuff. Let's look at verse 21 in Exodus 8. We're just going to go through a couple of the plagues to point out a couple of detail things, okay? The detail to which God is sovereign, and Scripture teaches that He is sovereign in the world. Verse 21, so Moses is going to Pharaoh, and he's challenging him that God's going to do so many things if he doesn't let the people go. In verse 21, or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and on your people and into your houses. He's speaking to Pharaoh. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where Israel is, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. And then in verse 31, 
after Pharaoh had temporarily relented. It says, And the Lord did according to the word of Moses to remove the flies. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. But then there's one little sentence after that. And it says that there wasn't one that remained. There wasn't a single fly that remained. Go down to the next section, the, the fifth plague, the disease and the beasts. Verse 3, Behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep. There will be a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died, but all the livestock of the children of Israel did not die. Not one died. And then Pharaoh doesn't really believe it, so he sends someone out to check. And it says, Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. Not one. It didn't sort of like, he didn't overextend his power. The seventh plague of hail, if you go down to verse 25, and the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. This is my favorite. This is the one I think that got Spurgeon thinking. The eighth plague of locusts. Verse 3 in chapter 10. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. And they shall cover the face of the earth, so that no one will be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of what the hail is left, of what is left, which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians. And the Egyptians are getting kind of tired of it, so they're talking to Pharaoh and they're saying, I think maybe we should really let him go this time. This is, this is getting serious now. And then down to verse 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. So this is a, a non-indigenous locust that the Lord sort of creates for the event. And it says in verse 15, For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green in the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. 
And so Pharaoh repents again. And so Moses went out from Pharaoh in verse 18 and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a very strong west wind in verse 19, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. Then there's that amazing line again. (laughs) There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. Folks, I don't know what you think when you read that, but if we believe the Bible... That means that of the billions of locusts that were created for this event, a couple of them didn't get away. A couple of them didn't stray where they shouldn't have gone. They did exactly what the Lord ordained for them to do. And when he was done with what they were ordained to do, he blew a wind that got rid of them and there wasn't a single one that remained. I'll just mention the last one, the darkness. It's kind of interesting. It says in verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the heavens, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. Hmm. Fairly dark, I imagine. And then in verse 23 it says, They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But you know what? All the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. I think that's pretty amazing, actually. The, the story in Exodus must be why R.C. Sproul said, if there is a single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free from God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. And I think when David's thinking about God in his sovereignty, knowing Scripture as he does, I think David was just glorying in the idea that this God, this sovereign creator, ordaining God, was David's God, who knew him and chose him and was with him and cared for him and loved him. David is exuberant in Second Samuel 6 because this God is the all-glorious God who knows and wills and plans and speaks and loves and becomes angry and asks questions and gives commands and listens to praise and prayer and interacts with his creatures. And that makes this sovereign creator king worthy of outrageous, reckless, abandoned, triumphant, joyful worship. The second aspect there of Psalm 24 that David is starting to think about is his purity requires pure worship from all. He says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Salah. And Salah is like a musical pause. Lift that idea up to the Lord. Who can stand in his holy place? And so the Hebrew idea behind that is, behind the idea of who can stand in his holy place, is who can maintain oneself while he's standing there. 
who can stand his ground before God, who has permission to come before him, who can endure being in the presence of this kind of a God. I think the question really is, folks, who's really considered to be moral when you're standing before this God? Who? Who? But we know from the song that we just sang that it's only Jesus, isn't it? And David is reflecting on this most likely because he realizes a couple of things about the ark. He realizes that possessing the ark of the covenant can either be a blessing, which it was to Obed-Edom, or it can be a total curse against you in judgment and condemnation. And it's really important to know which of those you are likely to experience while you're moving the ark around. The second Samuel passage describes the ark also as a symbol of God's judgment and wrath. And that when he's treated with irreverence, there are severe consequences. David's recognizing these. So he's asking the question, okay, well, who can stand there? Who can, who can be before this God? And David knew even while he was bringing the ark up to Jerusalem that you had to get it right around this God. There was a prescribed way to carry the ark, which David had decided to ignore. And everyone knew, and Scripture teaches us, that mistakes and irreverence could result in entire cities being wiped out. The Philistines, who initially thought it would be a good idea to bring the ark into their cities so they'd have the power of God on their side to defeat Israel, all knew what miracles had transpired in in Egypt. That's mentioned in Scripture. But in 1 Samuel 5, it says, But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, that Philistine city, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors. And several commentaries say that those tumors were most likely bubonic plague. So then they tried to move the ark to a different city, to Gath, and the hand of the Lord was against the city, it says, with a very great destruction. And he struck this time just the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. And the Latin version said that they had tumors in their secret parts. I don't know exactly where that is, but it sounds like something you should try to avoid, (laughs) if possible. So then they tried to move it again to the city of Ekron. And again, Scripture says there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. And the hand of God was very heavy there. And it says, the men who didn't die were stricken with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And even David is in his enthusiasm to return the ark to the city of Jerusalem, sets it out on a new cart being pulled by two milk cows, even though he knows that's how the Philistines sent it back to Israel. And so you have to ask yourself, Why would you do that, David? (laughs) Why would you do that? And the text said that David was angry with God when Uzzah stuck his hand out to balance the ark as it was falling off the cart that the cows were carrying and Uzzah died. What's even worse, that Uzzah was a Levite and he knowingly breached God's law in his irreverence. And so the whole narrative there, I think, is showing us that God's divine purpose in killing Uzzah was to inspire awe in his majesty and power. 
that dealing with him was serious business. It shouldn't be taken lightly. It was to show that God requires a profound veneration for what he has ordained in worship. And that's why David gives us these three big ideas about the worship requirements. The person who stands before God has to have clean hands. You need to be consciously abstaining from evil thoughts and doing evil. You need to have your actions towards God come from a pure heart that seeks His will and glory. You can't stand in His presence when you lift your soul up to what's false, knowingly false. You can't stand before God if you swear deceitfully to God and your neighbor and ignore your oaths. The person who comes carefully and thoughtfully, who never comes in his own self-righteousness before this God, that person will receive blessing, David says, from the Lord and his righteousness from the God of his salvation. And David was afraid to move the ark because he didn't know if God's displeasure had been provoked by the removal of the ark from where it was a blessing in Obed-Edom, or whether punishment would be extended to himself and the 30,000 Israelites because of his ignorance, or they might fall into some error or neglect while they're continuing to move the ark. Which is why David says, okay, then how can I move the ark to me? How can I bring it to me? And this is so telling. I, th- I think in my own mind I see this this way. David decides to go up to Obed-Edom to move the ark, and maybe he turns around and he says, Israel, get back! Get back! Guys, listen, we're going to take the ark now. But You've you got to be careful. We've we got to use extra extreme caution. Actually, fear and trembling are in order now. Guys, we've got to watch out for the judgment and the wrath. And so, the text tells us that they picked up the ark and they went six paces. And you can sort of imagine David sort of, okay, guys, be careful. Just, just take it six paces. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, okay, put it down, put it down. Get, get the fatted calves, get the sheep. Woo! Man, we are back in business! <laughs> then he lets loose with this dancing before the Lord because he knew he was once again in good standing with God. Good standing with the Lord of hosts. God was going to allow David to return the ark to Jerusalem and there was going to be blessing in the presence of the Lord again and there was a very good chance that all 30,000 Israelites would survive. Because all of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and great celebration and reverent joy and with the sound of the trumpet. Now, from an Old Testament perspective, I think we can safely assume that David never thought for a moment that he actually would meet any of those three conditions himself. So 
I'm inclined to ask the question, okay, then why the reckless, abandoned, triumphant joyfulness when David recognizes that the only ones who can stand in God's presence must meet the condition of absolute purity in thought, word, and deed? Why is he so joyful, thinking that probably no one can stand there? There's no one alive who can stand there. Why then the triumphant joy? And I think this is the reason. On the one hand, God requires absolute purity in thought, word, and deed from anyone who would dare stand in his presence. He is the most holy, sovereign, creator God of the world, the Lord of hosts. All glory belongs to him. And if you get it wrong in his presence, everybody knew the consequences could be devastating. And for some unfathomable reason, in spite of the irreverence and the failure to worship correctly as is required by a being of complete purity and holiness, and in spite of that, that being, that holy God, loves David anyway and wants to commune with him and bless him, and forgive him, and favor him, and protect him, and fight for him, and save all those whom he calls his own. That's where the swirling, reckless, abandoned, dancing joy becomes irresistible for David. He simply can no longer help himself when he realizes that he's back in the good graces of God again. That's where the heartbeat of the Chinese hallelujah comes from. That's where our hearts should be as well. Well, that third section of the Psalm 24 is, He is the most majestic king of all. I don't have a whole lot to say here. I'm going to conclude with a statement from someone else. It says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Pause. Lift that idea up to the Lord. Who is this king of glory? David called on these personified gates to lift their heads so the great king could enter, making the gates higher and larger and bigger because this glorious king is really too big to enter. This king is glorious because he is all-powerful. Because he is the sovereign creator God. Because he is the most holy Lord of hosts who goes before Israel and is victorious over her enemies. He is glorious because he is unconquerable. He cannot be defeated. He is deserving of all honor and glory because he is the most majestic of all kings. He's Savior and Deliverer. 
Let me read a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, In the end, that face which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. It is written that we shall stand before this God. We shall appear before this God. We shall be inspected by this God. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, will actually survive that examination. We'll find approval and will please God. To please God is to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father delights in his son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. This is the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. This is the King who David found worthy of reckless, abandoned, triumphant, victorious, joyful worship. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Praise to God.